The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library with additional support from Clark County Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, and Wright Memorial Public Library. Good morning. Welcome to the Best of the Book Nook on WYSO. And continuing our celebration of the life and legacy of Studs Terkel, who was born on May 16, 1912. Tomorrow is his 110th birthday. And I interviewed Studs when he was 89, still sharp as a tack, for his book, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Here's Mr. Studs Terkel. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis, and it's my pleasure to welcome to the program today Studs Terkel. His new book is called Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Reflections on Death, Rebirth, and Hunger for a Faith. Hi, Studs. How are you doing, Vic? Really, really good. Studs, tell us about yourself. Myself? Yeah. Oh, God, I don't know. Somewhat confused. Try to bite off too many things. I'll be 90 years old May 16th. This year. Now, I was born in 1912. That's the year the, the Titanic went down and I came up. But then who said, you know, life was fair? But in any event, I'm a Titanic baby. Uh-huh. So I've, I've uh, lived through a number of years. And uh, let's see, I remember the great American Depression of the 30s that many have forgotten. They forgot that it was the government, the federal government, that saved the society and not a new religion, uh, the free market. Free market fell on its face. You know that. The twenties, the twenties were post World War One, were a time of prosperity. The phrase was "the goose hangs high." You know, people invested in stocks, and bam, came the crash in October 1929, and people didn't know what hit them. And so I was interviewing a senior member of the uh, of one of the prestigious banking firms. He was sort of the equivalent of Alan Greenspan today one of Wall Street's wise men, I said, what happened when that crash occurred? And then came 10 years of the Great Depression that ended with the war, World War II. And he says, I don't know what happened. I thought to myself, you don't know who does. Hmm. And then he says, well, it's a, it was a horrible day. The ticket tape was going on all night, and John D. Jr. invests in thousands of shares of common stock, and down they go, and J.P. Morgan invests in thousands of shares of common stock, and down they go, and... Guys are jumping out of windows. And then he says, we waited for some kind of an announcement. I thought <laughs> to myself, from whom? God. You guys, and, it, and the announcement came from the federal government of the New Deal of Franklin D. Roosevelt. All sorts of agencies came into being, and then jobs were created by the government, WPA and other jobs. People otherwise were unemployed. And we seem to have forgotten that. And so the very ones whose daddies and granddaddies' butts would save a big government, the ones who first condemned, who most condemned big government, when it affects their whatever they're doing, you see. And so that's more or less one of the things that uh, challenges me. We're suffering from a national Alzheimer's disease. So there's no memory of yesterday. And the young have been deprived of their own history. So that more or less is what drives me to do what I do. I went to the University of Chicago Law School, but I didn't want to be a lawyer. I, couldn't. I dreamed of Clarence Darrow and woke up to Antonin Scalia. <laughs> he was teaching at the University of Chicago, by the way. Uh, that is long after I'd left. I graduated in uh, what, uh, third, 1934. And the rest has been a helter-skelter, higgledy-piggledy. So I became an actor. I was a gangster. 
in radio soap operas. Back in those days, Chicago had more radio soap operas than New York and the coast put together. And I was a gangster in all of them. One is called Woman in White. It's about a nurse. One is called Guiding Light, about a minister. Same script, you understand? Mm -hmm. And you always have the same villains in all of them, you know, three gangsters. The bright gangster, the middle gangster, the dumb gangster. And I was always the dumb gangster. And so I did that. Became a disc jockey, playing all kinds of recordings. My disc jockey show was a strange one. It was... I played jazz and folk music and opera. And then came television. And that's one of the early shows on TV back in Chicago in 1950. TV was still a new medium. And it wasn't the sales medium it is today. And so we could do anything we wanted with the hands of the writer, the director, and the, uh, the actor. And so I had a program called Stud's Place. It was one of the three programs that Chicago was known for. The first was... Cooper, Fran, and Ollie. Did you ever hear Cooper, Fran, and Ollie? I remember that. That wonderful program with Bert uh, He had little puppets in his hand, and they came to life. The other show was Dave Garraway, Garraway at Large. Did you ever hear Dave Garraway? I remember he was on the Today Show. He was the very first one. Yep. Dave Garraway was the very first face ever seen on television. He hung out with a monkey, didn't he? Didn't he have a chimpanzee that was on the That's show? That's right. Uh-huh. That was the first seat until Dave went on the Today Show. Very first. TV was 6 to 10 at night. That was all. And then, the, and there it was. And so then it was my show. And then I talk a great deal and say things not fashionable, and I sign all kinds of petitions. And so I got in trouble, McCarthy days. And so I lost the job. And so then I'm horsing around doing lectures on TV and all that, lectures on jazz and folk music. And I hear a certain radio station, a new one starting, an FM, like a public radio, only it was a commercial, playing classical music. And once and one of them played a Woody Guthrie record, and no one in Chicago played Woody Guthrie record except me. <laughs> and I had that, so I call up and I say, "Hey, how about working with you guys?" They said, "We'd love to have you on." I was kind of known in Chicago then, but we were flat broke. I said, "Well, I am too." So that was 45 years ago. That is 1952 to 1997. I worked on that station for an hour each day, and the hour was my hour. I could read short stories. I could play jazz or folk music or interview different people. And one day, a publisher from New York calls up. His name was Andre Schiffer, young publisher, head of Pantheon Books. And he says, why don't you write a book about the city? He read some of my interviews in a magazine. Why don't you write a book about what ordinary people think, what's happening right now in the 60s? Things are happening, the Civil Rights Revolution, the... The, the anti-war stuff, the uh, uh, cybernetics revolution, the computer coming in. And so I did the book called uh, Division Street in America, the first book called Oral History. And that seemed to go over. But not, see, I don't interview celebrities. I just like that because they're pretty dull. <laughs> but I interview people who have never been asked questions of their lives before. <clears throat> the people who make the, thing, the world go around ever since the year one, you know. And so... Suddenly I find out these people open up, and they say things they had never told anyone else before, their lives, and they speak of their lives. And so then came the Depression book, Hard Times, and then the World, the world War II book called The Good War. That's in quotes, you understand, because no war is good, mm-hmm. no matter how just, because it makes savages of all the kids of all the sides. And then went on to other books, you know, and that's how it began, all accidentally, really. Uh, my life I called an accretion of accidents. 
People ask what I am. You're an oral historian, they tell me. I said, oral history has been here long before we were born. There were the storytellers around the campfire. They tell stories long before the printing press, long before the pen. And so what I do is follow through what they did, except I have a tape recorder. You see? Mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm enamored of the tape recorder. There's only one other American who was enamored of tape recorders me. Who was that, you know? Alan Lomax? Richard Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come, we'll come to Alan in a minute. Okay. Musicologist. Richard Nixon and I. Uh -huh. And I was saying to myself, you know, we used to learn in school about Descartes, the philosopher. His famous phrase is, I think, therefore I am. And so Nixon and me, I describe as neo-Cartesians. You know, <laughs> I think, therefore I am. I, I hope that our purpose is somewhat different. Uh huh. And so that's more or less my story, in uh, less than half a nutshell. Was it Gore Vidal who first suggested this book to you? Yeah, it was. See what it was is uh, I told you about this radio program I did for forty-five years. Uh huh. Uh, it was any. It was my hour. I could do whatever I wanted. So I'd have authors on. I have a woman next door on, or I'd read a short story, or play music, or do a documentary. And so one of the guests a couple of times has been Gore Vidal with one of his historical novels or essays. And we're having a drink at the bar afterwards, and he says to me, you do uh, books about people and their experiences, the ordinary people. What about doing a book about how they feel about death? So I said to myself, oh, boy, I stared at my martini on the table, <laughs> and all I see is an olive, you know. <laughs> and uh, later on, 25 years later, I pick up on his idea. And so... There it is. By that subtitle, Hunger for a Faith. Hmm. The, the book is called Will the Circle Be Unbroken, which is the old hymn that Doc Watson sings. Doc, by the way, is that great blind country singer who's in the book, too. Mm -hmm. Doc lost his beloved son, Merle, who's a companist. And Doc is very devout. He says, I'm not a fundamentalist. Oh, no, but I'm devout. And he had a discussion, conversation himself with, with God. What? What in, what's going on? He lost his son. Well, Will the Circle Be Unbroken is a song that many of the country singers all know, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, Lord, uh, by and by, Lord, a better home. But it's also a book that has agnostics in it as well as true believers, believers in religious. See? I happen to be, myself, an agnostic. You know what an agnostic is, don't you? A cowardly atheist. <laughs> well, sure, I want to cover all the bases. I don't know, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can't make book on it, can you? <laughs> so the people who do believe in the hereafter, quite frankly, I envy to some extent because they feel deeply that there's something there and they will see their dear ones again. I, I may not have that figure, but I, I respect them. And so in the book has people of all sorts of belief or non-belief. But the common denominator is, I think, the, the richness of life itself that must be understood. That's that's more or less how the book came to be. Studs, uh, you you're defying the odds in that we see so many people around us as they get older, as they acquire more things, as they have more money and they get more comfortable, they get more conservative. What happened to you, Studs? Well, just the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> that's the old cliche, you know. The older you get, the more conservative you become. I think I've gone more and more the other way. <laughs> uh, well, I guess uh, I'd like to think independently. Uh, uh, we have a world today, right? Uh, 
We have a world in which fewer and fewer have more and more. We know that. And it goes to dough, it goes to power as well as dough. I'm happy to be on public radio, and I'm talking to you. We have a sense of independence right now. Now, I couldn't do this on commercial. I'd be interrupted too much by commercials to begin with. But aside from that, well, who, who owns these means of communication that filters information down and we finally get it siphoned off? Big corporations. Well, if, well think about it now. If we want to get, get in trouble. Okay, here we go. NBC is owned by General Electric. Can you figure Tom Brokaw one day, there's a scandal, General Electric is scamming the public. And he says, here's what I got to tell you about General Electric. He's out on his Tegucigalpa tomorrow. <laughs> okay, now, CBS is owned by Westinghouse. Uh-huh. Now, picture Dan Rather saying, Westinghouse is chipping you. Is that taking you, the working man, the woman, taking you for a... He'd be out on his tomorrow. Mm-hmm. C- uh, NBC is owned by Disney. Can you picture Peter Jennings saying, well, Disneyland, talk about a scam of kids. Out. Yeah. So you see, then you got one. Well, need I say anything about Fox, which of course is beyond anything. Rupert Murdoch. Uh, Rupert Murdoch. Mm. Here we have yeah, Mike Royko. Was Mike Royko carried down in, in your town? Mike Royko, the columnist. Um, was he, he known? He Mike Royko was well known for a long time. Sure. Well, Mike Royko, uh, when when the Chicago Sun Times was sold to Murdoch, Mike quit it. You know, he says no self-respecting fisher want to be wrapped in one of his papers. Mm. That's Mike. <laughs> and, and so uh, he he owns now he, he's given the Chicago paper to do Canadian Neanderthals as much to the ultra ultra right as he so that's Fox CNN has gone the way of Fox they practically said so so as a result of which we lose our sense of independent thinking it's coming to us siphoned off it's a way of losing I our like f- to battle it so that's the way I live it gets my blood coursing you're pretty good you you bottle up that sense of freedom. But, you see, remember, what, who are we in this country? Uh-huh. We, in the very beginning, the words of Thomas Paine, your common sense in the other book called Age of Reason, in 1791 he was saying, this society, this new American society, has been like no other in the history of the world, and it's true. It's an open society in which you are free to express your opinion and to dissent. One of the key things we're worried about today, by the way, with this administration and the G- attorney general we have, I'm worried about dissent. See, I'm a dis- obviously a dissenter. Without dissent, we're dead. See, I was taught as a kid, in fact, it was a young chancellor of Chicago during the graduation. His name was Robert Maynard Hutchins. Oh, by the way, his father, I was head of Berea College. You know Berea Colleges, don't you? Down in Kentucky, sure. Yeah, well, he came, his father did. Uh-huh. Robert Wayne Hutt was a young chancellor, and all his commencement addresses said to the students, you must always question, always question authority, no matter what the authority may be like. You must always question, ask why. If you think it's wrong, say so. In other words, and so Thomas Paine spoke of dissent as being a prime attribute of any open society. And now and then you criticize the administration and then say the... Uh, of the way they're conducting whatever it is they're conducting, well, you're considered a terrorist, for God's sake. Not that, but that's the idea of it, you say. Well, I guess I've been that most of my life. And uh, it's too late for me to change now, isn't it? Well, I would say so, Studs. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say you're stuck. But but you're a patriotic person, are you not? A patriotic person? Yeah. Well, if you find patriotism as the right to dissent, to believe in a government that's open and free, are you bet? 
I do. I mean, if I if if I hear something is wrong, Trevor, I'm not too wild about the way the bombings are being conducted. Frankly, I say no, and as I my my answer is no. It's a, I hope after thinking rather than saying yes without thinking. That's called the new patriot. I don't know what the new patriotism is. I believe in the old patriotism. I believe in something simple. You believe in your country's open society, and as a, as a citizen, you have to. It's not your privilege. It's your duty to dissent if you think it's wrong. I live in a certain well-off neighborhood in a, surrounded by a sea of have-nots. Mm-hmm. Now, wait for this bus. And this, and as you can gather, I talk a great deal, right? I talk, <laughs> I talk to myself sometimes. Uh-huh. And I find the audience very appreciative. <laughs> and so I talk. People know me on the street. The guy who talks writes these books. And so I wait for the bus. And there's this couple very handsome couple. I can't get him to say a word. They won't ignore me completely. My ego is hurt, too. He is dressed Brooks Brothers, you know, three-piece suit. He's got the Wall Street Journal under his arm. And she's a beauty. She's a stunner. Uh, you know, uh, Neiman Marcus clothes, Bloomingdale. And she has the latest Vanity Fair in her arm. Uh, and so I, I want to make conversation. The bus, is, the bus is late and coming. So I say, well, Labor Day's coming up. The wrong thing to say. Mm-hmm. He turns up into one of the ICU, just looks at me as though I were a speck of dirt. He turns back. Well, now I'm really hurt. You know, my ego, my vanity is hurt, you know. And so then I I, I turn to him again. I keep going. Now I know I'm going to get him mad, but now no bus. So I say, Labor Day, we used to march down Michigan Boulevard, banners flying, uh, we shall not be moved, singing those songs in solidarity, CIO, AFL. We're packing house workers, and he turns to me and he says, "We despise unions." And turns away. I said, "Oh boy, I got a pigeon here. <laughs> you know, there's no bus, so now I become the ancient mariner, and I fix it with my glittering eye, <laughs> and I say, "How many hours a day do you work?" Catch him on a word. He says, eight. How come you don't work eighteen hours a day? Your great grandparents did. You know why you work eight hours a day and not eighteen? Because four guys got hanged for you in Chicago, eight, fighting for you for the eight-hour day. Well, this goes on this way. By this time, he's scared, this old nut. I got him out pitting against the mailbox. He can't get away, you know. And, she, <laughs> and she's very beautiful. She drops that fairly fair. I pick it up, and I courtly hand it to her. And I say, how many hours a week do you work? Forty. How come you don't work? Eighty hours. I go on again. For this time, the bus is coming. They hop on the bus. I never saw him again. And so I'm willing to bet to this day... Because they live in this condominium that faces the bus stop. they on the 25th floor. She's looking out the window every morning. He says, is that old nut still down there? <laughs> well, I don't blame them. They know, they, because they don't know about the history, do they? Mm. They don't know what labor did. Studs, I've been um, doing radio stuff since the late 70s. What advice would you give to a guy like me just starting out? Just to do what you're doing now. And have the guests you have. <laughs> I, think, I think one of the keys to interviewing me is listening. Listening to a person. And, uh, and for example, you find very interesting about African-American people. Sometimes they may laugh at a certain moment or chuckle. You wonder why that they're recounting a moment of humiliation. Mm-hmm. For an example, mm-hmm. you mentioned Alan Lomax earlier. Mm-hmm. I love Alan. I know Alan Lomax. He and I work together a lot. He's a, he's a great musicologist. He's one of the great figures in American folk music. And so Alan Lomax and I know the singer named Big Bill Brunsey. Mm-hmm. He's one of the greatest of all blues singers. He's hardly mentioned. 
the young kids today say, Muddy Waters. Bill was his teacher. Mm -hmm. And so Big Bill was also a craftsman. You know that uh, black men of a, a certain age, or those who were granted the slaves, were, were, were jacks of all trade. You know, he could be a good carpenter, a good, a good uh, roofer, a good blacksmith. Could really, and so Bill was an excellent welder. Mm. And he, he said, so I was teaching this young white kid how to weld. And finally, he taught him, I taught him every trick. And finally, as soon as he learned it, they fired me. And he chuckles. Now, why does he chuckle at that moment? Because that laugh is a safety valve. You know, that's a blues lyric, laughing to keep from crying. You know? mm. Sort of uh, that moment of humiliation just to sort of change the feeling of it? And, no, you see, it, 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 it's a safety valve. But without that laugh, you rage, you see. Uh -huh. And so that laughter, sometimes the laughter has adversity. So sometimes you hear those things, and you have to understand why, and you go into it further. That's, that's a big, one of the great moments to me is these little, these little triumphs. I was interviewing this woman, this one of the early book, I think it was the first one, Division Between America. It was the housing project. It was mixed, white and black. The one common denominator was poverty. And so this woman is quite pretty. She's got three little kids. And to this day, I don't remember if she was white or black. She was light, light skin, black or white. Bad teeth, because no money for dentists. And so little kids are dancing around, and they want to hear their mama's voice. Remember, the, the tape recorder was not uh, as ubiquitous as it is today. But also, uh, this kind of woman had never been asked about her life before. So I say, I say to the kids, now you be quiet, and I'll play it back. So I play the tape back, and this woman hears her voice. And she puts a hand to her mouth, and suddenly she says, I never knew I felt that way before. <laughs> well, that's a sensational moment uh -huh. for her and for me. I love that stuff. Mm. That comes out. Studs, you closed the book with um, something that you and I talked about a little while ago. Kathy Fagan and Linda Gagnon. Oh, boy. What a story. Well, see, I, I didn't have that as the original close of the book. See, originally... I had Mamie Mobley, the mother of Emmett Till. Now, ask the audience, did you, did you, I'm asking you, did you ever hear of Emmett Till? Oh, yeah. You did. Well, I you're sure one did. of the few of, yep. of the young who did, because most young don't. Not that. Emmett Till's name should be remembered as Rosa Parks, because it was his murder in Mississippi that set off the civil rights movement, 1955. Emmett Till is a little kid that was living with his mother, a very devout woman named Mamie Mobley. And he's, he's a kid in the neighborhood in Chicago, 14 years. Everybody loves him, but he, he, does, he does errands for everybody, helps in housework. But he wants to visit his cousins in the town called Money, Mississippi. He goes down and visits his cousins. They go to a general store to buy some bubble gum and run by a white couple. And as I leave, the little cousin, about 12, says to him, Hey, that woman, she's pretty, huh? And, and Emmett whistled. <laughs> Just like that. Mm -hmm. Well, the husband heard it and called his brother-in-law, powerful guy, and they, they killed Emma Till. They couldn't be, then they kill him. They, had, they threw a cotton gin with him. And they, he, was, he was crucified. He's, so his mother, Mamie, wants to see her boy. And so they forced the state of Mississippi to send up three caskets, three caskets. Open up, she looks at her son. My God. Nobody was a scarred. His eye here, like... The only one person in history was a scar disease. That was Jesus. Uh -huh. And suddenly I saw the stigmata of Jesus in my boy. And my editor says to me, Studs, this is the Pieta in words. And so I thought, 
If, if, if Jesus died for our sins, what did Emmett die for? Well, I can't quite close the book with that because I remembered something perfect for me. Uh, in 1955, way back, long before I wrote these books, uh, I interviewed, I visited this woman. Uh, she was African-American hospital aide, but she was self-educated. You know, she was into, she used to read Charles Dickens and William Faulkner <laughs> and stuff like that. And she's pointing to her daughter, who's big with child. Her husband left her. And the kid's about to spring out any minute. And then she points to the belly of her daughter. I want the little baby in there to read books, to love music. And he, I remember the phrase, I want the little baby's soul to fly. Well, 35 years later, that's now, I meet this little baby. It's Dr. Marvin Jackson, neurosurgeon at a Washington, D.C. hospital. And so there you have what I call crucifixion, resurrection theme. That's a great close, I think. Mm. But that life doesn't work that way, not with me. I run into somebody else. That's the couple you just described. Uh-huh. Dr. Kathy Fagan and uh, Linda Gannion. Uh-huh. And Dr. Fagan, the upper-class uh, uh, Cleveland family, she works at a public hospital in Chicago, Cook County. She's gay, but she has this yearning to have a child. She wants a family. And so she talks to a doctor there, a well-known gay doctor. His name is Ron Sable. He's been active in civil rights and everything. A very, quite a remarkable man. She says to him, could I have your sperm? And he says, well, of course. And so there's a boy. And up in Massachusetts, a woman named Linda Gannon doesn't know either of the other two. She suddenly, she's very gay. She, talks, she suddenly has this feeling, maybe a sudden, had it for a long time, having a baby and a family, wants a family without any male interference. And so she hears about Ron Sable. And yes, he'll give her his sperm, and she has a boy. And now 11 years passed. The boy's now 11 years old. Women don't know each other. Rana's now dying of AIDS. And 200 people show up, pay tribute to him. He knows he's dying, and everybody came. I was there, too. And they come with their boys. They don't know each other. The sons of Ron Sable. And they fall in love. And they decide to live together with the two boys. And Ron dies in the meantime. Eight years passed, seven years passed, and now I see them in this book. They came to Chicago. One of the boys is going to go to Elmhurst College. And they tell me of the last dinner they had. Ron Sable now loves his, these two boys as a father loves his sons. Before he did it out of political reasons. You know, by God, they have a right to. Mm-hmm. But now he, he loves fathers and sons, and they love him. They love each other and love the boys. And there was a the family dinner they described. They're so beautiful. Last line, he gave us a gift. And I think to myself, this is what family values are all about. Mm. Well, without the ingredient of love, don't tell me about family values. That's what family values. So I thought that's a closer for the book. How would you, Studs Terkel, like to be remembered? Oh, boy. (laughs) I think I said on my epitaph. My epitaph is, curiosity did not kill this cat. (laughs) How do you remember? I guess someone who did his job. People say to me, uh, "Well, you, 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 how long have you been retired? Retired? <laughs> when you say that, smile." That was the Virginian, you know, the, the Western, the Virginian. Uh-huh. When the villain called him an SOB, when you say that, smile. So I say, when you say retired, smile. It's good. For some, if they want it, a lot, most people like that. That's fine. But me, no. This is my task. This is the work I do. So I'll kick the bucket 
doing what I'm doing. Maybe even talking to you right now. That'd be very dramatic, wouldn't it? Oh, studs, that'd be a radio moment, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's great, great talking with you. It's a pleasure, studs. I love that great talking. I'm, I'm carrying on this, this, this monologue, you know. You feed me some wonderful questions. I'm saying great talking with you. I love that. <laughs> oh, we had a conversation. Come on now. Of course we did. Studs Turkle recorded a number of years ago when he was 89 years old. Tomorrow, he would have been 110. He was born on May 16, 1912. And Studs is one of my radio idols, and I treasure the memory of talking to him about his book, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? As we celebrate Studs Turkle this morning on WYSO. For the best of the book nook, I'm Vic McCunis. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>